Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Here's my favorite rant for the day, excerpted from our podcast, which you can find over at TomHartman.com. So let's take this a, a step beyond where we were, this whole discussion of the White House Correspondents' Dinner and Sarah Sanders and how do you deal with this administration. And let's actually talk about this administration. And, and I would add, by the way, right now uh, in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu is building a case for the United States to attack Iran. And uh, the networks, uh, some of the cable networks are carrying it live. Um, I am so horrified by that. It is such bad judgment to, on the part of our press to carry a sales pitch for war by a, a hard right leader of a foreign government. A, a clear attempt to modify American foreign policy. It's just wrong. Uh, you know, one of Trump's biggest allies, not Netanyahu. This is just wrong. Anyhow, when, uh, when Michelle Wolf was giving her monologue, her comedy routine, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner at the Hilton in Washington, D.C., Donald Trump was in Detroit speaking to, with the exception, as far as anybody can tell, of one guy, an all-white audience. And in fact, before he went into his rant about those god-awful brown people, the Hispanics, he said, and I quote, any Hispanics in the room? Nah, not so many. That's okay. And then he goes off on his rant about, you know, his anti-Hispanic rant. But what preceded that was Corey Lewandowski, and, and I, I refer you to an article about this over at rawstory.com. According to Lewandowski, flashing the white power OK symbol. It's not just an OK symbol. It's an OK symbol where you lift your little pinky out. So this, and, and, and this is kind of a trolling symbol, too, because the white power guys do this. Richard Spencer started this. They do this, and then when the press reports on it, they go, no, no, we were just saying everything's OK. You know, so it's like, you know, it's a meta troll. It's like trolling the press. But you'll find in the article in... in uh, Raw story, the OK symbol widely used by white supremacists like Richard Spencer and although alt-right types like Stephen Miller and random interns also use a Stephen Miller in the White House every day with Donald Trump. Uh, so that's, that's going on. Meanwhile, and this, this is the stuff that, I mean, this is how Donald Trump became president, was calling out to white racists. And, and this is something that, you know, we really need to acknowledge. Uh, Nathan Gray has, or Ethan Gray, excuse me, has a, a great thread uh, that 
you can find over on, on uh, Twitter. He said, we've seen the excuses of Trump. He says he was going to shake up the establishment. His campaign uh, spoke for those who let, were left, felt left behind. It's so refreshing to hear a candidate speak his mind. What does all that mean? He said, these theories do not have any explanatory power regarding why the vote broke down the way it did demographically. Only one broad demographic seemed to be receptive to the kind of campaign that Trump ran on, white people. Trump ran on calling Mexicans rapists, on banning Muslim immigration, on building a wall to keep undocumented brown people out, and on national stop and frisk. And, and questioning the legitimacy of Obama's birth certificate. And he says that we know that denial of racism predicted a vote for Donald Trump significantly more than other factors like economic dissatisfaction. And then Trump, Trump uh, celebrated lack of education. And then they go, he goes on to say lack of education predicted support for Trump because of its strong relationship to ethnocentrism, not so much income and occupation. Trump voters thought that a hierarchy that prioritizes white people was under attack. And that was the essence of Trump's entire message. White people, they're coming to take away your privilege and your power. He says Donald Trump won because affirming the primacy of whiteness is still an issue of importance to too many white voters. And after eight years of a black, government, of a black president governing us, a wide swath of white voters wanted to send this message to people of color. And the message was, and I think this is absolutely true, this is why uh, Ethan Gray says Trump's failures, Trump's blemishes, Trump's problems were not bugs, they were features. Because the message that white people were sending with Trump's candidacy was the worst of us white people should still be given deference over the best of you black people, Barack Obama. We can put up the, the lout, a, a loudmouth, lout, uh, liar, misogynist, serial uh, womanizer, uh, you know, fat cat guy. We can put him up as a way of saying, ha, he's better than the black guy before him. W.E.B. Du Bois in his Black Reconstruction in America talked about this, the wage, the psychological wage of whiteness. He said an experience in experience. In exchange for experiencing potentially low economic wages, white people are given a psychological wage in the form of ubiquitous deference. We've got a little more to share with you about that, and then we'll pick up your calls on this topic right after the break. Into a, a larger discussion that should probably spill over into the next hour as well, and that is this whole issue of the Republican Party and Donald Trump specifically uh, using the, you know, with Paul Manafort as his campaign manager, the guy who Lee Atwater worked for, he worked for Paul Manafort when he developed the Willie Horton ad, um, the guy that Lee, Lee Atwater worked for when he was promoting, and, and, and uh, Manafort did too, promoting uh, both the Reagan and the, and the Bush presidencies, for example, um, calling out to white people. This, this is uh, from Ethan Gray's thread over on Twitter. He talks about a Harvard study asked people, this has nothing to do with race, just, but listen to this, asked people if they'd rather make $50,000 when everyone else around them makes $25,000 or if they'd rather make $100,000 but everyone around them makes 200000 
In other words, you would you rather be the richest guy in the neighborhood, but you're only making 50 grand a year, and so you have to have your lifestyle calibrated to that? Or would you like to be a fairly wealthy guy? You're doing good with 100 grand a year, but other people in the neighborhood are all making 200 grand, so you're not the richest guy in the neighborhood. 50% of people who answered this said they'd rather be the richest guy in the neighborhood, even if their income was lower. And that's what whiteness is. Whiteness is being the richest guy in the neighborhood, being born with it, not having to think about race, not having to worry about discrimination, having, having you know, centuries of social capital laid on you, literally at birth. And, and he, he says, this is actually why many fiscally left-leaning policy positions that we support run into brutal opposition. The real undercurrent is too many white people don't want to share the social safety net with anybody else. And he points out, uh, Harry Truman proposed single-payer uh, health care nationwide. Harry Truman, in like 1940, uh, I forget the year, I think it was 46, might have been 47. Harry Truman was president of the United States, and he said, let's have national health care. And the Southerners, most of them Democrats, uh, ironically, but the Democrats in the South in the, in the 30s were the racist party. The Democrats in the South shot it down because they were afraid that it would mean that the hospitals would get integrated. Their hatred of black people, well, let me rephrase that. Their, their tenacious clinging to the privileges associated, the powers and, and privileges associated with white privilege were stronger, more emphatic than their desire to have health insurance. This is not some theoretical thing. This actually happened in America. He goes on to say the White House did not show extraordinary deference to whiteness for the previous eight years because the president was black. So the institution was undermined by a majority of white people who voted for a man thoroughly unfit to run the, run the institution, but who promised bigotry. And just to, to highlight this, right now, there is, an, in, in Alabama, they just closed all their courts and state offices last week on the 23rd to honor the Confederacy's fallen soldiers and their lost cause. Three days later, the Legacy Museum and National Memorial for Peace and Justice uh, opens their door in Montgomery. Three days after, the, the, whole, the whole state says, we're going to shut down in, in remembrance of the, of the traitors who fought for slavery. And then three days later, they open this, this museum. And this is from a description in the New York Times. Uh, this is the, uh, the brief summaries along as you walk through this museum of all these, these images of people who were murdered by lynching. It's a lynching museum. Parks Banks, lynched in Mississippi in 1922 for carrying a photograph of a white woman. Caleb Gadley, hanged in Kentucky in 1894 for, quote, walking behind the wife of his white employer. Mary Turner, who after denouncing her husband's lynching by a rampaging white mob, was hung upside down, burned, and then sliced open so that her unborn child fell to the ground. Why were Dangerfield newbies' ears cut off as trophies after John, Brown, John Brown's Harper's Ferry Raid of 1859, as were the nose, ears, and genitals of Sam Hose during his torture and dismemberment in 1899? 
Why did Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest butcher hundreds of surrendering black Union troops at Fort Pillow in 1864? And why did white militiamen slaughter 100 African-Americans in Colfax, Louisiana, who were merely trying to safeguard the results of the local elections there in 1873? As James Constant, uh, Co Jane Coaston recently explained, Alabama Confederates like Stephen Hale made no secret of the obvious in December of 1860. He says, what Southern man, this was the Confederate leader of Alabama, what Southern man, be he slaveholder or non-slaveholder, can without indignation and horror contemplate the triumph of Negro equality and see his own sons and daughters in the not distant future associated with free Negroes upon terms of political and social equality and the white man stripped, and this is, this is the... This is the key to the whole thing. This is why the white people who supported Trump supported Trump, and we know this now. We thought it was because of economic insecurity. We thought it was because their jobs went to China. We thought it was because Trump said no more stupid wars. No, it was this, exclusively or largely. Again, quoting Stephen Hale, the Alabama Confederate, the December of 1860, and the white man stripped by the heaven-daring hand of fanaticism of that title of superiority over the black race which God himself has bestowed. John C. Calhoun, 1873. John C. Calhoun, you'll see his name and his statues all, I lived in Georgia for 13 years, they're all over. He said, quote, if we do not defend ourselves, none will defend us. He's talking about white people. If we yield, we will be more and more pressed as we recede. If we submit, we will be trampled underfoot. Be assured that emancipation itself would not satisfy these fanatics. The gained, the next step would be to raise the Negroes to a social and political equality with the whites, and that being affected, we would soon find the present condition of the two races reversed. John C. Calhoun. Yeah, the black people want to make us slaves. We got to freak out. And of course, the vice president of the, of the Confederacy, this was Alexander Stevenson, or Stevens, excuse me, the number two guy in the Confederate States of America, quote, the new constitution, he's talking about the Confederate constitution, has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution, African slavery as it exists among us, the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution, in other words, the Civil War. Our new government is founded upon its foundations laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. The slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. And of course, we've seen apartheid states based on that kind of racist ideology from South Africa to modern day Israel. And this, this acknowledgement of naked racism is what put Donald Trump in the White House. And it is absolutely something worth calling out. Hi, I'm Nate Atwell here with the Tom Hartman Program. Today we covered racism, misogyny, and the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Was Michelle Wolf's comments a little too far, or was the reaction just fake news? Later on, we check in with... Uh, Ralph Nader and then uh, the minister Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove and Reverend Dr. William Barber. This is a great episode. and You're not going to want to miss it. TomHartman.com slash podcast and YouTube.com slash Tom Hartman.